The 911 call is the first interview. His priority was not the victim, but his priority was himself. He is withholding information. Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we bring you the best guests in all of true crime. Here's your host, Emmy Award-winning journalist, Joel Waldman. What's up, STS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in all of true crime. Uh, and tonight is no exception at all. Uh, Ellen Greenberg, we've been covering this case, and I was telling the guests offline that it has become uh, sort of an obsession of mine to help get justice uh, for both Josh and Sandy Greenberg. Uh, Ellen Greenberg was her only daughter. It seems like justice has fallen on deaf ears, and the only people that can really turn that around at this point, uh, I'm afraid, is STS Nation. So, uh, uh, and I'm going to ask Wendy about this, but it's time to make some noise, STS Nation. Uh, we need to continue to tweet at politicians. Uh, the mayor of Philadelphia, he has the power, and we'll ask a guy about this, to uh, sort of force the medical examiner's hand in this situation. So we've got to tweet at the mayor, got to tweet at the governor. The governor was the former attorney general, and he punted this case. Again, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, with Guy DeAndrea and why that happened. But the proverbial can has been kicked down the road too much. And now uh, it's time to make things happen. Um, I suggested, and maybe it was a really dumb suggestion, tweeting at Kevin Hart uh, on Twitter. He's the biggest celebrity out of the city of Philadelphia. Uh, maybe he'll find this of interest. Um uh, what's his name? What's the, what's the good Bradley Cooper? That's the other guy, the handsome fella. He does not have any social media accounts, so we can't tweet at him. Uh, but if anyone out there has some good ideas, I know Kim Kardashian was doing some work uh, on the justice side. Uh, let's try to put our collective brains uh, together and see how we can grab the attention of the powers that be. But uh, just so uh, those who have not followed the case know where we're at. At 6.40 p.m. on January 26th of 2011, so this has been going on since 2011, Ellen was pronounced dead uh, as a result of 20 stab wounds. She was an elementary school teacher. Uh, Ten of those stab wounds were to the back of her head and neck. In addition, importantly, and we'll talk to Wendy about this, there were 11 other bruises in various stages of resolution on her right arm, abdomen, uh, and right leg, signs of uh, domestic violence and abuse, which is a specialty of Wendy Murphy. But despite the mountains of evidence to the contrary, uh, the medical examiner, a gentleman known as Dr. Marlon Osborne, who is now in Florida and worked on the Parkland shooting case, believe it or not, he uh, did an about face and ruled Ellen Greenberg's death a suicide. Again, an independent autopsy shows that two of those 20 stab wounds came after her heart stopped beating, which means she was no longer alive. Kind of tough to stab yourself two more times uh, when you're not here on planet Earth anymore, um, at least your physical being. Uh, without further ado, best guest and a new face, Peter Hyatt is a statement analyst and instructor, instructor who teaches statement analysis and analytical interviewing to law enforcement in corporate America. He's authored the Investigator Training Manual for DHHS, the state of Maine, as well as authored the book, Wise as a Serpent, 
Gentle as a Dove. That's a great title. Uh, he's been interviewed extensively on radio and TV, uh, including on Crime Watch Daily. Uh, and he was part of the Taken Too Soon, the Caitlin Markham story documentary. Wendy Murphy, I love her. She's fiery, and she's always got uh, a strong opinion. She serves as adjunct professor of sexual violence law at New England Law Boston, where she also co-directs the Women's and Children's mm -hmm. Advocacy Project under the Center for Law and Social Responsibility. And she's kind of smart. She's a former visiting scholar at Harvard Law. Uh, Guy DeAndrea is no schlub himself, this guy. He's a former Philadelphia assistant district attorney in the homicide unit. He discovered Ellen's file in the Philadelphia DA office, probably under a mountain and heaps of papers. And he sort of blew the whistle on this case, uh, a hero of sorts. Uh, but we haven't gotten quite to the point that we need to be yet. Uh, Guy is now in private practice and a stellar uh, defense attorney. Plaintiff's um, attorney. Plaintiff's, plaintiff's attorney. Plaintiff's attorney. Plaintiff's attorney. Sorry about that. Sorry about that, guy. Big difference. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. We are a podcast STS. And a huge program note. Tomorrow night, live, 8 p.m. Eastern time, doing a one-on-one -one interview with Ross Coulthard. For those who do not know, he interviewed the UFO whistleblower, one of the biggest stories. Uh, of the last year, and uh, he is coming on live from Australia, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, Wednesday night. Going to look at a different sort of mystery, UFOs and UAPs. Uh, he claims to know where there is a massive UFO uh, under a structure on a, in a foreign land, but they also happen to be here, he says, as well as potentially some alien bodies. So we are going to look at that. But tonight, it's all about Alan Greenberg. Uh, Wendy, you're the domestic violence expert. I asked you to come on as a result of that. Yet, I don't think you've followed the case quite as closely as a guy like Guy D'Andrea. What is your uh, overall opinion on what you have seen and heard? Well, as much as I've written, I'm sure there's a lot more out there. Um, I didn't worry too much once I, once I read just a few sentences uh, about... Um, whether I thought this was a homicide or a suicide, I don't even think people should be debating that anymore. It's not worth our energy. Um, and it's, I think it's embarrassing, frankly, for anybody to debate that this is a suicide versus a homicide because it gives too much credence to the suicide theory. So I wouldn't give it any weight whatsoever. I would, however, um, and you know, if I represented the family, and I represent families in cases like this all the time where the prosecution and the police aren't doing the right thing and they don't know how to make the right thing happen because it's really hard to hold prosecutors and police accountable. You can't exactly sue them for negligent failure to prosecute. Um, and, and I do have some thoughts about things the family could do that I don't believe they've tried yet. I'm not sure they'll work, but I'm happy. You know, I'm, I'm very creative, willing to not just think outside the box, but kick the box in the ass as hard as necessary. Um, but before we talk about that, uh, I, I'm, you know, I'm struck by not just who the potential suspect is and the fiance's um, potential role in all of this, but also the absence of much, the, the absence of any discussion about motive. If you want to prove a case, even though motive isn't an element of the crime, you got to you got to get something on motive. Mm -hmm. So that's what makes me um, excited about getting involved in this case and trying 
to help if I can. I think everybody wants to help because we all know this is a grotesque injustice and we can't believe it's happening and so forth. Um, so my, my takeaway just from reading the basics is that the, the history of abuse, which is important, is, is, um, is not getting the amount of attention it deserves because apparently it's been reported, and I don't know if it's true, that she told people there was no abuse, that she told her psychologist there's no abuse. And so we kind of want to just let her statement about that tell us to turn the other way or look the other way or just, you know, assume that those old bruises aren't from abuse. But it so happens that she also started taking the kinds of drugs that can interfere with memory, coincidental with her starting therapy. And so what that made me think is that there's a real possibility that something was happening to her when she was not conscious in the form of abuse, which would explain why she didn't think she was being abused and also explain why she ended up having this strange level of anxiety and, and, and all these mental health issues that she couldn't make sense of. Maybe he was, not he, maybe somebody was, was drugging her. Maybe there were things happening to her when she wasn't conscious. I'm, I was involved in a case not long ago where um, a wife was um, being filmed secretly by her husband, happened to be a doctor. Um, while they were doing sexual things and who was posting perhaps even selling those videos online you know i know that that people um not on her side seized her laptop the same day that that her body was found or the next day and um we all correctly wonder what was so important about the laptops well you know maybe she found out that that there was something going on either with somebody she knew with her own body. Maybe she was going to blow the whistle. Maybe she was going to report abuse that she just found out about. But what I want to, what I want to emphasize here is that the kinds of drugs she was taking, at least some of them like the benzodiazepines, clonopin, those can completely erase memory. And so abusive men will sometimes give them to their victims to make sure they don't remember what's going on. Um, it's a nice way to get away with very bad behavior. And to the extent there's something sexual and inappropriate behind the scenes in this story, and I haven't read anything that suggested that, but a, but a, but a woman who suffers any kind of physical abuse, in my experience, is also suffering sexual abuse. Um, you know, the idea that she found out something happened or he was, or he was um, made aware that somebody was fine was was on top of something this and when i say he i'm referring obviously to the to the person to the man who was most close to her fiance if there was something nefarious going on and she found out or he found out that she knew um that's a very strong motive to kill someone my biggest problem is if he's smart enough to stage the scene and there was a lot of staging at the scene why was he so dumb that he stabbed her in the back of the head that doesn't jibe. And that's a concern that I have about this case. But until we really get at motive for the possible suspect to have a motive, you know, you, you, you have to, you just have to accept that this is a difficult case without somebody coming up with an explanation for why anyone would do this to her, rather than just saying, we all know it's a homicide. 
And we know that there was somebody, you know, in the area um, close to her at the time. That's not strong enough, in my view, to, to file charges. It might be, but give me a motive. I really need to have a motive. So that was my initial take on what I read. Uh, and very thorough. CJ Drake says, I live in Pennsylvania, so I feel like I owe everyone in the chat a silent apology for our terrible leaders. Uh, it's not on your shoulders, CJ, but we appreciate it. Uh, Guy, to you, just wondering if you would like to um, take the baton from Wendy. Any follow-up to what she had to say there? You know the case. Very quickly, uh, Josh and Sandy are watching tonight, as far as I know. Uh, and I know, Wendy, they would love to hear about, um, you know, innovative ways that you might be able to help. We'll get to that, you know, down the road a little bit. But I just wanted everyone to know that I believe that they are watching and uh, last time they hopped into the chat. But without further ado, Guy, take it away. Sure. Uh, just following up with what Wendy had said, and I, I agree with, especially under the benzos, you could have lost memories. Um, but even, you know, more to that, I, what I do now is, as an attorney, I exclusively represent sexual assault and physical assault survivors in institutional settings. And so oftentimes it's not uncommon that the, perp the person who's suffering from that sexual trauma, that sexual abuse, that physical abuse, even to their most trusted confidant, won't disclose. You know, I have people that I represent now 50 years later are finally coming forward to talk about the, the abuse sexually, physically, otherwise that they suffer from as a child. Uh, it's taken that long. We, we're learning a lot more in, in psychology and psychiatrists and everything about sort of why people do that. And, why, and there's a, a lot of it's common sense, right? Embarrassment, shame, all the different feelings that you have. And, you know, clearly someone was abusing Ellen, there's no, there's no doubt about it. I mean, the physical evidence doesn't lie, right? People can lie. We always say that physical evidence can't and the bru bruising all over her body in different stages of healing. Uh, she wasn't involved in anything that would, uh, account for that level of damage to her body. And so as a result, it, it has to come from someone else. And so she was being abused for at least a couple of weeks. I mean, because of the different staging or not staging the different processes in terms of healing. So, you know, absolutely. Um, and I know ultimately you're going to play that 911 call. And I know that um, uh, Peter's going to have a lot to say about that, but, but so do I. Yeah. Um, and right to that point, um, Marianne asked Peter, deception expert, what's that? Uh, what do you do? How do you get into it before we get to some of the meat and potatoes of this all? Okay. What I do is limited strictly to the words <clears throat> Um, for instance, in this case, a 911 call. And we begin with the premise that the person is telling the truth, that that's a presupposition, that they are candid, that they are looking to facilitate the flow of information to help the victim. So we start on all those, those uh, beliefs, and we only conclude deception if that person talks us out of that position. They have to literally overcome that position for us. And it's not a moral exercise. It's, it's a technique that we use successfully in discerning not only truth, um, but the deception in, in cases. What sometimes can become difficult is being able to determine if someone is deceptive on, like, for example, deceptive on a 911 call. Is the person deceptive and did it? Or might there be attendant guilt? I learned a valuable lesson many years ago where um, a father had his little toddler go missing 
and she was later found killed by a, a, a sex offender. He lied in the 911 call. He was deceptive. But as it turned out, the deception appears to be related to him under the influence, not watching his little daughter, her going outside by herself. So we call that attendant guilt. It's like someone that said, I didn't kill the guy. I was just robbing the body. They'll show guilt. They'll show deception. But we have to try to discern where it comes from. What's the source of that? So I limit myself really to the words. Um, when I take this, I have a, a team of analysts from around uh, the United States, Canada, Western Europe, Australia, all around the world. Um, some brilliant team members. And we did this particular case a while back, a year or so ago. And what we do is uh, each of us brings something to the table. Like, for example, we have a, a, a medical doctor, a criminologist, a brilliant one, uh, Ursula Franco from Rome, Italy. And so she's able to weigh in on some of the forensics. Uh, we have others that are, are psychology experts, others that are in law enforcement, federal, state, local. So as a team that, that has a quite a variety of influence, we put that together and we generally have a good track record because of it. Very, very interesting. And, and uh, forgive my ignorance, but um, how is the practice different than, let's say, someone who uh, administers a polygraph? Uh, it's actually similar. In fact, um, I work with some polygraphers to be able to help them uh, enter the language of the person being polygraphed so we don't introduce any new language. You have principles that we follow with that. And so where they can say, this person's having a reaction right here, we can go into the language itself and explore that language and oftentimes get more details, including possible motive. And we are going to get uh, into this 911 call in a moment. Uh, we were debating uh, the CTO and uh, Space Coast and myself how much of it to play because it's about five minutes long. I voted for all five minutes. I was outvoted. So we'll play a little chunk and then we can go back and play some more. But before we get there, uh, first of all, as you can see, uh, Sandy Greenberg is watching with her husband, Josh. So Sandy, know that we are thinking of you and we're all working uh, to try to get justice. Um, Peter, you said you worked on this case a year ago. Was that um, in uh, in what capacity? Were, were you paid to do that? Was it pro bono? Were you asked to do it? No, we just asked to do it, and the, the team volunteers their work. Hmm. They do quite a number of cases. And we did this. Uh, obviously, we knew ahead of time about the unusual uh, circumstances, including the number of stab wounds and the location of stab wounds. But that was all that was given. When um, at times we'll do this for uh, law enforcement specifically, in those cases I never comment on. This is not one of them. I have no connection with the investigators here. And, and do you know if the work that you guys did, was it ever handed off to someone in a position of power? I think it was given to, to someone who represented the family. Okay. Uh, well, maybe Guy and Wendy will help us dig into that. Um one thing that really struck me, Wendy, you're talking about motive, and uh, big shout out to Gavin Fish. He's an independent journalist that knows more about this case than anyone, and we actually snagged the 911 call we're about to tape from his YouTube channel. It's Gavin Fish, true crime, I believe, fish-like as in the ocean, um, so please uh, support him. But um, he mentioned something. He said that of, of those 11 wounds, and Guy can probably... Uh, 
you know, substantiate this. Um, and guy, let me ask you this first, I guess. Uh, one of the wounds or the injuries was to her ring finger. And that really struck me because obviously they were newly engaged. She had an engagement ring on, uh, that that happened to be a point of injury. Um, seems very telling to me. Is it true that her ring finger was damaged guy? That wasn't classified as a stab wound, at least that I recall. I I remember there being injury. There was an injury to her hand. So that might've been what he's referencing. Uh, The stab wounds as delineated, at least in the original medical examiner's report, I don't believe that was identified as an actual stab wound. These weren't the stab wounds. These were the 11 other injuries. Oh, yes. I'm sorry. I, I, I misheard you. Then, yes, that was an injury. That's correct. It just wasn't a stab wound. That's correct. Yeah. And, Wendy, what do you make of that? Uh, that of all the parts of the body, the ring finger, where you wear an engagement ring, was damaged. Well, I can speculate like anybody and um, describe a hypothetical story of either she confronted him with something and said, I'm not marrying you and tried to rip her own finger ring off her finger or, um, or he did it because he wanted the ring back and he was angry with her about whatever it was. And that ring's worth some money and he wanted it. I, you know, I'm, I'm speculating, but if there's a ring finger with an injury and there's a, an expensive ring on it, certainly common sense would, would tell you that there might be a connection there, but it also could just be, I know they. I know they didn't describe defensive wounds per se, but um, you know it's so easy to injure your hands if you're trying to protect yourself in some fashion. I, I, don't, I know there were no stab wound defensive wounds, but that doesn't mean somehow that finger didn't um, become involved in some effort on her part. If it's an older wound, um, you know, again, the fact that it's a ring finger with a ring on it it may matter because they were engaged and then they broke up by virtue of murder. (laughs) So I, I I don't know. I mean, I wouldn't put a lot of energy into that. The thing that I want to focus on, and it's your show, but (laughs) shut me up anytime you want. The thing I really want to focus on, and I'm eager to hear the 911 call. I certainly have read descriptions of it. And uh, I, I hate getting sidetracked into things and territory where it's reasonable for one person to say, well, you know, he sounded like that because of this. And the other people say, well, no, but you know, there's no right way to be when you're dealing with trauma because you never get anywhere. There's always an argument. That's why defense attorneys make the big bucks. They can always argue that, that something we think is, means this means something else. The, the clarity of the crime scene as a homicide um, is important to start from. And then you know, knowing that it's a homicide, let's find a suspect and see what we can do to rule them in or out. Hypotheticals are always used by law enforcement. They paint pictures that seem to make sense to them based on the physical evidence. And then they, then they try to disprove them like scientists, right? And if they can't, then they stick with it until they can. And if they can't, that becomes their prime suspect. This is just the way it is. And it's the normal and ordinary way to do it. Obviously, the case has been, to me, it's obvious the reason the case has been declared a suicide is because if they call it undetermined or a homicide, they have to spend resources investigating. And then the whole case goes to hell for them, for them who want to cover it up. Because if you do even one ounce of investigation in this case, you end up with uh, a pretty strong murder case. All you need is, you know, the political wherewithal to file the charges. So the only way 
around that. The only way to get away with doing nothing is to not call it a homicide. Once it's a homicide or even undetermined, there has to be an investigation. So long as it's a suicide, there doesn't. So let's pretend there is a homicide designation because that's what the evidence tells us. Now let's identify all the suspects in the universe. Who are they? I only know of one. Maybe there are more that I don't know about. I haven't read a single story that suggested there's any other person of interest or suspect except the fiance. And um, I know he was interviewed by police with a lawyer. Well, did he take the fifth on any questions? I'd like to know that. Now, I'm not the government, so I'm allowed to draw an inference if I want to from the fact that he took the fifth on a question under the direction of his attorney or not. It's fair for me to know because I'm not the government and I'm allowed to pass judgment on someone who takes the fifth and assume a certain level of guilt by their refusal to answer questions. And I don't care if they're the fiance. Anyone who refuses to answer questions on the grounds that it might incriminate them comes across to me as someone who deserves to be a suspect. Maybe that's not fair for the government to make that judgment, but I'm allowed to. So, you know, let's just make progress on the case and ask the tough questions about who the suspect is. There's only one to my knowledge. And what do we know about him? including the staging evidence, including potential motive. And if you want me to, and I won't do it now because I don't want to keep talking, but I will tell you the hypothetical that I think describes what actually happened, the, the, the things that preceded the murder itself, and why I think this does involve sexual behavior, sexual behavior that even victims keep quiet about either, not because they're ashamed they're being abused, but because it's private. You know, if, if you say, well, she had old bruises, the defense is going to say she was into S&M. So that doesn't get you very far. And she's not around to say she wasn't. Well, yeah. what, you know, what can we find out about? Well, Wendy, I, I, I 100% want to hear that. Um, but let, let's, um, let's in a moment take the uh, 911 tape and then we'll circle back to a guy just to Wendy's point, was, which is interesting. Do we know if uh, Sam Goldberg, the fiance, uh, ever invoked his Fifth Amendment right? Yeah, so he, he didn't invoke his fifth, but what he did do was prior to giving an actual, there was some confusion even in the last podcast as to whether he gave a statement on scene or not. He would have talked, and I think I spoke about this before, to the first responding officers. He did not give what we call in law enforcement an actual statement, you know, 7549 um, or 75483 rather in Philadelphia. He didn't give an actual statement until he was at the station. And he did give a statement, but the big but here is that he, we call it lawyered up, right? He had a criminal defense attorney who is incredibly, I mean, I, I argue, and I said this last time and I mean, it. I believe that he is the best criminal defense attorney in Pennsylvania, potentially the entire country. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not saying that tongue in cheek. And he had him represent him during that, in, that interview. It was a very brief interview because largely he was instructed not to answer the questions. So I'm not trying to play semantics. It's it, he didn't need to plead the fifth, right? Because he has a criminal defense attorney sitting next to him who's just not going to allow him to answer that's certain the questions. Same thing. That is it's, the right. Same I mean, thing. yeah. It's I mean, absolutely so fair to say that's an incriminating way to respond when your lawyer tells you not to answer. That is the same as taking the fifth, in my view. Not as a criminal, right. not as a lawyer, not as the government, as a human being. If your lawyer tells you not to answer questions, that's incriminating. It's about to be the Peter Hyatt show, I promise, in one second. But uh, Guy uh, Nightwood here says, what politics have thwarted the Greenberg's case seems insidious. Can you just, uh, in a more brief form, kind of uh, address this? And then, we'll, again, we'll circle back to it. Yeah, for sure. Um, a brief form is, you know, with unless there's more evidence, uh, 
I don't think from the beginning, I really don't, unless there's evidence to show it, that politics played a role in this. I think what really happened was there was poor investigation from the start. And when you realize that as a detective, police department, you have a couple of options. And they definitely realized it. Um, you can double down on your mistake, which makes a snowball effect. And it just creates more and more questions, more and more problems. And that's what kept happening, right? At some point, did politics play a role? Probably, right? Nobody, I mean... It, God, it what mistakes the did they make? I don't understand that. This is not a hard case. Some cases are hard. Yeah. This was not a hard case. Yeah, the mistakes they made initially is the homicide yeah. detectives who showed up declared the suicide um, but, with no investigation. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. The, other thing, I mean, the other thing about that real quick is police are not supposed to make the determination. That's right. right. That's, not, that's right. not a mistake. That's not a mistake. Okay. What mistakes did make that messed up the crime scene i don't know yeah. aside from letting people go in the next day the crime scene is what it is it was staged she was killed there's only one suspect so there's no yeah. need to double down on your mistakes because you didn't make any well they never i mean they should have tested i mean because there wasn't a tremendous amount of blood and so they should have tested for the presence of cleaning materials to clean up the floor clean up the cabinetry clean up the counters uh because the amount of stab wounds and the where they were especially in the head uh tend to bleed very heavily. So there should have been, given the amount of stab wounds, way more blood, especially the enormous laceration on the matter. top of her head. It's still a homicide with one suspect. No matter whether there was cleaning fluid used or not, it's still a homicide with one suspect. I don't care yeah, if but they that's, wiped, didn't wipe. But that's the point. I mean, the homicide detectives did not determine it to be. They know they don't it's determine it. Not, error. Maybe it's an error. It doesn't matter. The bottom well, line it's, is it's relevant because what happens after that. What happens after that is a snowball effect, right? People, because it's not declared a crime scene. So pe people are allowed onto the property, in the property, the property to be cleaned by professional cleaners, civilians to take out technology. I mean, a whole host of things that should have been, it should have been declared from police perspective, a homicide, which then would have, with the crime team would have came up. They would have the, only, the only error, I would agree with you, makes a difference, is the removal of her laptops and the possible destruction of evidence. And if they have enough money, which it sounds like they do, they had enough money to scrub it to the point where no one will ever find it. And that, you know, it's a battle of experts. If they can go deep enough to retrieve, they probably can't. That, I will agree with you, was an error of, of terrible judgment. However, it doesn't change the bottom line at all. And it certainly doesn't create this sort of pile of mistakes that make it hard to prove the case. The case is not hard to prove because if you had multiple suspects, the case would be hard to prove, maybe. But you don't. You got yeah. one. The, the got presence one. of cleaning fluids on the scene, because again, Sam gave a statement that next, very shortly after, and if you take for what he said in his statement to be true, I'm not saying I do, but if you take it to be true, if there were the presence of actual cleaning materials to clean up blood, it would have been a, one, a definitive homicide, two, it would have been an immediate arrest. Because if you believe Sam's statement to be, if you take him at his word, he was gone for quote unquote 30, no, about 34 minutes. he would say the minutes. real killer wiped her up. He'd say the real killer did it. it that doesn't mm. change much for me. He'll just say the real killer was trying to clean up a little bit. That doesn't change anything for me. I respectfully disagree that there's any, we made too many mistakes in the beginning, justification for not moving forward. Uh, I hear what oh, you're saying. I'm not, I'm not justifying why they didn't move forward. The question was, was there a political process in place that allowed this to happen? And my point was in the beginning, no. 
I don't well, believe. I don't think you can case. say that because you don't know who made a call to whom at what level. We don't know. Well, that's why I prefaced if, without evidence, and I have not seen any. I've not seen any evidence without well, evidence. You, and you never will. No, <laughs> that could will. be the case. That certainly I, could be the case. I love hosting a show with lawyers because uh, the, the arguing, I don't even have to do anything. I could just sit here for the next 45 <laughs> minutes and the arguing, arguing will continue. Uh, Patricia Byrne says, holy crap, is that Peter Hyatt? Yes, it is. And it's now time for the Peter Hyatt show. Uh, this is a 911 call courtesy of Gavin Fish, Space Coast. Roll it for a little bit, and we'll get uh, Peter to break it down for us. Everyone, this is a 911 call. Stabbed herself. Where? She fell in a knife. Oh, no, her knife's sticking out. Oh, uh, what? There's a knife sticking out of her heart. Oh, she stabbed herself? I, I guess so. I don't know where she fell on it. I don't know. Okay, well, don't touch it. Okay, okay. so I'm just, I just let her down. Here now? I mean, what do I do? No, I mean, you can't. If the knife is at her chest, it's going to be kind of hard for you to do CPR at this time. Oh, no. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Police with operator. 277. Is someone coming here? Yes, they are. You said 4601 Flat Rock, right? Yes. Okay, someone's on the way. And the knife is still inside? Which or what? The knife is still inside of her? Yes, I didn't take it out. Is it her chest or what area? It's, it's in her heart. chest. It's like, it looks like it's right. It looks like it's right in her heart. Okay, someone's on the way out there. Okay, just get Oh the my door. God, oh my God. How okay. old is she? She's 27. 27, and there's no sign of life at all? No, 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 please don't be. What? Been turned to her arm and tell me she responds to pain. She's... Ellie, she's not, she's not, her arm, her hands are still warm. I don't know if that means, but there's blood everywhere, I mean. I know, but you can't, and the knife is still inside of her. How far? Can you see how far it went in? It looks pretty deep. Okay. It looks three, I mean, it's a long knife. Don't touch anything. Yeah, don't uh, touch anything, okay? I'm not touching anything. This is, I can't believe this, though. No, wait, it was just you there with her? We, yeah, we're the only ones here. And she ran in the door, you said, lamps it shut? No, no, I, I, I went downstairs to work out, and I, when I came back up, the door was latched. Space Coast, let's hold like it was, you know, it wasn't like it was, you know. So that's a bit of it right there. Um, Peter, I'm not even going to ask you a question. Uh, what, how do you analyze that portion of it? Okay, the, the 911 call is the first interview. It is the first interview. It is something that is just essential. If you could, if, it, if it's possible, go back to his first words. It's going to be the most important thing. What a person says first is going to be their priority. Space I want to know around that. Okay. All the way to the beginning, Peter? I'm sorry, all the way to the beginning? Yeah, just to the, the first answer that he gives. It generally is the most important. I'll okay. give you an example of why. Okay. Um, Space Coast, let's get there. I'm going to bring it back up. We're going to go. This is courtesy of Gavin Fish. We'll let it play out for a little bit off the top here. Yeah, just a just a minute. Okay, one minute off the top. Oh, I, I, I need I need I need everything now. I just I just walked into my apartment. My on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? Forty six oh one Flat Rock Road. Please come help. Okay, right. so um, we're gonna we're going to take this exercise and we're going to believe and trust in his words picture that he is uh, probably someone that has 20 or 25,000 words in his own head with his own personal dictionary. He is going to decide under the duress of what the situation is, what words to use, when to use them. And we're going to trust those words to guide us. 
And the, the case I was referring to earlier, uh, Sergeant Randy Long presented it to, a, uh, to me while I was teaching and asked if we could analyze a 911 call. And we did. And we concluded that the caller killed the victim and her son and that we knew when he did it. And we also knew the motive in there. And then, then he sprang on us the, the details of the case and the case file and, the, and everything else. The detectives had cleared him, the suspect that I'm saying is guilty. He had passed his polygraph. And then the uh, coroner was satisfied with the forensics uh, and the blood spatter and that sort of thing where he concluded, no, this, was, uh, this woman killed herself and her son. And this case was closed. The DA said he would not reopen the case unless the coroner was willing to change his finding to undetermined. So I sent him the analysis of only the 911 call. I mean, no record of anything outside of that 911 call. He said, you know, this makes sense. And so they reopened it as undetermined, undetermined. And a new investigation began. Two years later, we had a conviction and somewhat of a, of a jailhouse confession as well. It was in his words. And the first thing he, he, that he said was, two people just killed themselves in my house. <laughs> I believe him. I believe him. What he's doing is he blamed his girlfriend and he blamed a seven-year-old boy or six-year-old boy. Two people didn't just do that. But I'm trusting in his words to guide me. And let's take a look at... at um, he said the same thing. This guy did. Well, bring it back so, up, Peter. Bring it back up. No, it's okay. I, I have the words, you know, the first opening words here. He asked for help. I've got, I need, I need. And guess what? I believe him. I believe he's got a need. I believe he needs help. I'm trusting his words to God. He's choosing those words in less than a microsecond of time under great duress and pressure. So I'm going to let these words guide me. But if he's going to say, I need my fiance's bleeding out, tell me how to stop the bleeding, then that's appropriate. If not, it's about his needs. And what is his need? Will he specifically ask for help for her? Or is this about him? I continue. Help. I've got. I need. I need. I just, I just walked into my apartment. Now, I know from outside the case now, uh, as time has passed on, the word just is a comparative word. Is speaking of time. The element of time is present. If you just broke in to an apartment, because and you find that your fiance is bleeding. Now he has this information as he picks up the phone. Would you say that you just walked in? That's the type of language that we see in scripting. Someone that has rehearsed it or practiced it or, or decided what was the best word to choose. Say that That's one more time, Peter. I'm, I'm, I'm slow on the uptake. I apologize. Say that one more time. Um, picture yourself having to break down the door. You've been calling for her. She won't answer. So you have to break down the door. Would you describe it as just walking in? Do you know how many, how many 911 calls of children that have been murdered begins with, hello, I was sleeping and I just woke up and my daughter's missing. Yeah, they set the priority in the order of which they speak. Mm -hmm. And, I am um, concerned right from the very beginning that he is setting a, an alibi, a linguistic alibi, 
for himself. He wasn't there. I just, I just got there. And then the word walking is to slow down the pace. You burst into a door, you find that. And then remember, this is all momentarily hindsight. He's, he's already seen her. And so now I expect for him to tell, to ask for that help, either uh, first aid instructing or demanding they get out there to help her. What do I do to help her? He doesn't. And if he can't say it, I'm not going to say it for him. I believe his words, and I'm, I'm letting those words guide me. And Peter, I'm jumping ahead here, but um, what about the fact that she has a knife four inches deep in her chest, and he doesn't seem to notice that for quite a while? Um, Interesting thing he says about the knife. He calls it her knife. Yep. Her okay. Knife. Pronouns do not lie. When we're... <laughs> If you're going to have to deceive and halt on a pronoun, something is wrong. Did you notice also in, in his 911 call, he halts on the pronoun I. He's been using that pronoun I up to that point in life millions of times. They, if he's not a stutterer, when someone stutters on the pronoun I, there is an increase in anxiety at that point. Of, the, of course he's under anxiety. It's showing up right when it's pointing to himself. The pronoun I. So we look for that as well. Yes. Uh, sorry, one sec. Space Coast. Hang on a sec, Wendy. Space Coast, can you go? Space Coast, go back to where it says her knife, and we'll play that again, that part, if you can find it while we're talking. Go ahead, Wendy. Yeah. He, no, he, he says she stabbed knife. herself. Nobody would say that. He, she, how, why did he say she stabbed herself? What we look for in that is where did that... Where did that originate? Did that originate from a 911 operator, which would be a huge mistake on the, the, uh, the operator's part, or did that come from him? And then you can ask yourself reasonably, who would, who would walk in and see a fiancé, a loved one, bleeding? In, her, in his language, at some point, she's not bleeding. The blood is everywhere. That's passivity. That removes responsibility. It, it makes it less personal. But her knife, did she walk around with a knife all the time? Or was her, you know, if that was some unusual setting, then it could be appropriate. But if this is a knife from the kitchen, a knife from the home, why would he assign it to her? This is just. Um, as I think we're. Yeah, I think we're queued up here. Let's let's listen to a little bit more of this. And we'll come back to it. Herself. Where? She fell in a knife. Oh no, her knife sticking out. Oh, uh, what? There's a knife sticking out of her heart. Space oh, go back to Go back I, can't, I guess so. Out of her heart. This is where it is, everyone. Right uh, there, what? right there. Go back to the zipper. Oh my god, she stabbed herself. Where? She fell in a knife. Oh no, her knife's sticking out. Right there, boom. Stop it. Her knife. Her knife is sticking out. Uh guy, you haven't gotten a word in edgewise and making me nervous because you're a lawyer. Uh, what have you made of this phone call, uh this nine one one call up to this point? Yeah, this was when I finally got to the 911 call when I found this file. Uh, I found this to be the most disturbing piece, uh, enlightening piece that I had reviewed when I was going through the file. And so I did a little experiment within the DA's office with people who had never heard of this case. And all I did was give very simple facts. Um, imagine your significant other, you enter an apartment and he or she is stabbed 20 times. That's all I want you to know. Now listen to this 911 call. And everyone's like, everyone thought this was like a put on. Like, well, this is a joke. I mean, this can't be a real 
if you're saying this woman was stabbed 90, uh, 20 times, this can't be a real 911 call. Now, I get the whole point of everyone reacts differently. I understand that. But the, the telling thing, and, and, and Joel, you brought this up, it's about two plus minutes or so, give or take, that the knife is first identified, right? And just for the listeners, it's graphic, but Ellen is in a seated position up against cabinetry with a knife. It, when you see the photographs, it is the knife is one of the first things you see besides Ellen. I mean, you cannot miss this knife. And it's two or so minutes into this call that all of a sudden there's this startling revelation, right? Now, if this is your significant, you're not next to this person, you're not holding, you're not doing, even if you're not, you're not slouched down next to them, how do you not see a kitchen knife, a large kitchen knife protruding out of your, if take him at his word, uh, your most cherished person in your life's chest. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, this God, is, you, yeah, go ahead, Peter. I'm sorry. This is my, one thing I was just going to say, Peter, and then the floor is yours, is in addition to why is it her knife, uh, one of the things that I know you talk about too, which I don't think we've come to yet, is that he uses the word, the word sorry a lot uh, in the call, but the floor is yours. Yeah, I was just going to ask Guy, and it's rhetorical that when he heard the 911 call and going in and believing a suicide, does the 911 call, and it obviously does, it upsets that, it challenges that, it, it turns it on its head. And you say that, you know, how did, how did this work out that way? If someone committed suicide in this manner, uh, and this is just my guess, she would have to be uh, under the influence of something like methamphetamine, something so extreme and so out of her mind uh, that this, it goes beyond just the you know hesitation wounds of a, of a not suicide, suicide, um, better bear some of those things. This is rage. This, no this doubt. Is, yeah, the, the, and to have that type of rage against herself, I think she'd have to be heavily under the influence more than just psychotropics. No doubt. And I, I, I've always, yeah, Peter, I've always said that the wound that, I mean, there's a lot of wounds, obviously, that, that trouble me. The wound to the top of the head, the, the smack wound, I mean, it looks like she was hit on the top of the head with the sharp portion of the knife. It is so troubling because people can harm themselves in all sorts of ways. And I don't disagree. I mean, for someone to do this, uh, it takes a special level of, of either intoxication of some sort or mental illness. Um, but the wound to the head, I mean, it just screams of anger, of rage, the word you know, what you the word you used. I mean, and and it's not a sign of someone who's trying to kill themselves, right? I mean, there are all sorts of studies and showing that people there are people who do hesitation, obviously stab wounds. There's people who do test stab wounds. I've never seen 20, but the the, the laceration to the head I always found to be the most troubling of of, of the injuries. Wendy, in all your time, Wendy, in all your time with domestic violence, and you're one of the experts in the country on this. You ever heard of a young woman stabbing herself to death with twenty stab wounds? No. Listen, I was a prosecutor for five years. I prosecuted uh, some homicides as well as an awful lot of sex crimes cases. That was my expertise. So I handled female victim cases for years, and I've been doing that work as a private attorney <clears throat> a lot. You know, a lot of DAs do what I do, ex-DAs do what I do, but, you know, I represent victims all the time. I've sued Harvard, Yale, Princeton. I mean, I, I go after institutions. I go that's after why, perpetrators. Why I, 
<laughs> but, I mean, I sue now on behalf of victims of abuse and violence, but I also um, still do a lot of volunteer work on behalf of victims just to make sure the system works as it should, because as a member of the system, as a prosecutor, I saw stuff happen. And now on the outside, I can be an irritant to make sure things, uh, things are at least known to families. Families don't know what the criminal justice system is supposed to do. They generally don't have um, experience beforehand. They trust everybody and, and they think they're being supported. Everybody pats them on the head. They don't know when something uh, corrupt is happening or when the, when, the, when the rules are being bent. They don't, they don't have a perspective. So I help and I do that stuff all the time. But um, in terms of your question, and so this is why I'm giving, like, I've been doing this for over 35 years. I can promise you, not only have I never seen any suicide remotely like this ever, I can guarantee you, and I will eat my shoe on your program live if I'm wrong, no person, male or female, has ever committed suicide at all like this ever in any country on earth. That's the end of the discussion about the wounds, okay? I think we can all agree it's a homicide and we can all agree there's only one suspect. And now the question is, assuming uh, this 911 tape um, uh, is fair game to come in as evidence, and that's all I know is that if there's one suspect, it's a homicide and I get the 911 tape, I'm going to trial. I'm charging the person, I'm going to trial, and there's no way a jury's gonna let the person who made that 911 call walk. And that's and there's a boatload of evidence on top of that. So why are we here? This is well, what I think we need to talk about. We know Josh strong, 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 more than proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and then some. So why is it not being charged? Forget investigated. It's already chargeable. Why yeah. isn't it being charged? And and where I part company with a lot of people on this story is. I wouldn't spend a dime going after these politicians. Go after the AG, go after the mayor, go after the governor. They can wait this out. They can and they will wait this out. Throw the football over there. Blame them. Wait and oh, we're going to do an invested. We're going to do so Wendy, what do you what do you do? You know I mean what do you do? Well, what I would never do is let a government official take it from another government official and believe that they're actually going to do something different. That is not going to happen ever. Ever, even if every news organization in this country does story after story, it's not going to happen. I think the only way to make something really happen in a case like this is to get the people in the community, everybody, to put up lawn signs, billboards, uh, bumper stickers, and you have to get protesters out there. Now, I, I don't think people appreciate this, but but it's important because we saw it during the O.J. Simpson case. We saw it during the nanny trial in Boston. We saw this in virtually every high profile case where you've got all these protesters outside with a sign. Michael Jackson, they paid protesters at the Michael Jackson trial. They, I was there. I forget which, which organ, news organization I was working for at the time, but I was in Santa Maria. There were protesters outside the courthouse with signs cheering and yelling, Michael, Michael. Well, guess what? After the cameras left, when he arrived in the morning, the cameras left, they left because they were only paid to be there for a certain amount of time. Then they got paid to come back at the end of the court day, Michael, my, my, and then they disappeared. You can pay protesters 
And if, to, if the family has the money to do it, they should pay protesters to be outside any public place that matters on this case. I don't care if it's in front of the DA's office, which is where I would focus my energy because the DA has the power, whichever DA has it today, the DA has the power. Make it a political issue. The next time there's an election for district attorney, make this case a front and center issue. Go to every single debate the DA has with their opponent. And you make it very clear that the DA that's going to win is going to be the one that files charges. The DA is an elected official. Why would you ever vote for someone who's not filing charges in a case like this? Vote them out of office. Vote the next person in based solely on this case. It takes money to do that. You got to organize people politically, mobilize people politically, signs everywhere, protesters everywhere, pay the protesters to be outside the office of the district attorney every day starting tomorrow until the next campaign. That will get charges. STS Nation, uh, it's surviving the survivor at gmail.com. Uh, need your help to organize this. Josh and Sandy have actually talked to me about uh, people who were planning to protest. They are from Harrisburg, uh, the epicenter of uh, the state there. Um, so um, please send me emails with your suggestions if there's anyone that wants to take the lead on this in terms of forming uh, the protest uh, and getting it together. Uh, let me know and I will get the word out uh, the best that I can. Um, Dr. Von Decay, we'll get back to that too in a minute, um, Wendy. But Dr. Von Decay, by the way, I don't want to put the comment up, but Tilo who's from Boston, is cheering you on the sidelines. And she says, Wendy will chew them up and spit them out. Go, girl, the Boston uh, camaraderie there. But uh, Dr. Von Decay says, Peter Hyatt, I am so excited. I have followed statement analysis since its inception. He has taught me more than any professor I've ever had. I am so happy. Uh, Peter, maybe I'm totally wrong, but when I listen to this, and I am a nobody, but I am the son of a psychiatrist and a social worker, so I'm kind of tuned in a little bit um he sounds just like he's to me like he's completely hamming it up at the very beginning it's it's it feels like it comes on so thick and then it sort of levels out and he's not you know a drama queen or king uh after you know he kind of settles into the call am i am i right on that wrong on that close not close when we do the analysis and i'm speaking just for uh, analysts in general, yeah. we don't listen to the 911 call. We're examining the words that are chosen. Mm. After we do analysis, then we'll go ahead and listen to the call. And, and it, it is obvious, as you said it, but we, we analyze what he says, but we also analyze what he doesn't say. And if you had gone into an apartment and you found your fiance with a knife in her chest and blood everywhere, would you be afraid of an intruder? Would you be afraid that someone could still be in the apartment? But he went right to mm -hmm. uh, suicide. Mm -hmm. And I, there's nothing in the words at, at that point, at least early on, coming from an operator or someone that could suggest it to him. So if I go back for a moment to the uh, I just, I just, mm -hmm. what he's telling us there, using the element of time and doubling up on it, he was there longer than he let on. Uh, Space Coast, let's re-rack it to the top and then we'll, let's just listen to the top for, you know, another 30 seconds of it, just so it can sink in here a little bit. Oh, I, 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 I just, I just walked to my apartment. Right there, Space. Right there. 
I mean, listen to how he's like, it's like an intentional stutter and a stammer. I, 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 it's like, I mean, to me, that is so forced. Uh, Wendy or God, Wendy, do you, do you see that or am I making things this, up? In it, this is just galling to me that any prosecutor, cop, or anybody on two legs would not hear this and charge this guy. Galling. Absolutely galling because there's nothing in here that supports his innocence, and there's a ton that makes him uh, even more of the suspect than he probably already was. I don't think you um, should put too much emphasis on this as forensic proof of anything because, again, the defense is going to argue to the jury. You don't know what it's like, ladies and gentlemen, to walk into a room where you've got this bloody person with a knife in their chest. You have no idea whether you would make sense, whether you would mumble, whether you would, you know, use the wrong words, et cetera. And the, and the jury's going to nod because they have no idea how they would react if they saw something like that. They've never seen it. They've never been through it. So I don't think it's that kind of definitive proof. But what it is, is it gives the jury permission to hate the guy. They're going to look at this dream date Ken handsome guy here and think he's not capable of killing. He's a nice man from a nice family. What a nice person. He looks like my next door neighbor. I can't get my head around the idea that forget that he could kill at all, that he could kill like the like the movies you can't even open your eyes for. Come on. That's not what a killer looks like. It's so disturbing for a jury to look at a handsome guy and know that he's from a nice family and think that he's capable of that. It so scares people to embrace that possibility that they will vote not guilty just to feel better about the world. And that's so this is the beauty of a 911 call like this. It allows the jury to go, oh, my God, he is a horrible human being. I do think he's the type of person who could kill that's the beauty of this this type of evidence to me as a prosecutor, and it's what I would expect um, to be its value in a case like this. And then uh, Space Coast, let's re-rack it, and I'm going to let Peter just uh, we'll let him uh, unleash after we listen to the first minute again just to round it out for us. Oh, my God, I need, I need a now I just I just walked to my apartment. My fiance is on the floor with blood everywhere. What is the address? Forty six oh one Flat Rock Road. Please come help now. Oh one Flat Rock Road. Is it a house or apartment? Oh no! Oh no! It's an apartment. What apartment number? Please hurry, Where please. She's bleeding from. She, I don't know. I can't tell. She's. No. So you have to calm yourself down in order to get you some help. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She. I don't know. I, I'm looking at her right now. She. I don't. I can't see anything. She. Didn't, there's nothing broken. She's bleeding. Ellie. You don't know where she's bleeding from, can you? Ellie. Blood coming from. It's. I think her head. I think she hit her head. I think. I think but it's all it's everywhere. Okay, it's everywhere. She might have fallen. Do you know yeah. what happened? She, she. She may have slipped. There's blood on the on the table. Her her face is a little purple. Okay. Hold on for rescue for her. Stay on the phone. Philadelphia Fire Department 842. What's the address? No, uh, 4601 Flat Rock Road. Please hurry. 4601 Flat Rock? Yes. Let's go. 
My, my, I just, my, I went downstairs to go work out. I came back up. The door was latched. My fiance's inside. She wasn't, she wasn't answering. So after about a half hour, I decided to break it down. I see her now just on the floor with blood. Like she's not, she's not responding. Okay. Is she breathing? She, I can't. Look at her chest. I need you to calm down and I need you to look at her chest. It's really. I don't think she, I really don't think she is. Listen to me. Someone's on the way. Look at her chest. Is she flat on her back? She's on her back. So okay, I her... Look at her chest and tell me if it's going up and down, up and down. I don't see her moving. Okay, do you know how to do CPR? I don't. Okay, I can tell you what to do, okay, until they get there. I want you to keep her feet. Oh, God. Her... Hello? Yeah, hi, okay. Are you willing to do CPR with me over the phone so they can I, get, I, I have to, right? Okay, so get her flat on her back, bare her chest, okay? You want to rip her shirt off. Okay, you kneel down by her side. Oh, my God. Allie, please. Listen, listen, you can't freak out, sir, because you Okay, I'm trying not to. I'm trying not to. Her shirt won't come off. It's a zipper. Rip oh, my off. God. She stabbed herself. Where? She fell in a knife. Oh, no. Her knife's sticking out. Hold it there. Hold it there. There's a knife sticking Look how long we just went. Two minutes, 37 seconds. My eyes and Peter, for the first time, he notices a knife wedged into her chest. Um, he also, I noticed, said when, when he was asked about CPR, he, he said, do I have to? And it was kind of like almost like in an irritated tone of voice. But Peter... Your reaction. Obviously, you've looked at this a zillion times, and you're the expert. The um, the value of an analyzing a 911 call lies in twofold. In a case like this, the first um, level of efficacy in investigating is to have analyzed this before the interview. We get the, the, uh, we're able to give an investigator, and I'd like to do interviews myself, but um, the language that he used, we can use. And the order of which he says things, we follow that order. We follow what he does. And, and when this, he came on the second time here, and he's asking, uh, you know, what went wrong, what happened. Um, he said, I went out. And then he wants to explain why he went out to exercise. Now, with someone bleeding inside, we really wouldn't be expecting to have an explanation of why you went out. What we do with that is we look for an alternative explanation now. So why did you really go out? that and then he um he said he went to work out explained why he went out and then he said the door was latched and then he finally gets to her and now we learn that he is able to discern through his own words that she stabbed herself that's victim blaming that's victim blaming now it, it, we look at an appropriateness of that if, if she had been known to do that for a long time if she had been threatening to do it and she'd been trying to do it and and made some of those physician wounds in, in the past and that sort of thing. He's already blaming her. He sets himself outside. He can't get in. He had to go work out. So don't blame me. And then he goes and blames her. This is what people do with sometimes a guilty knowledge of what took place. And, and Joel, can I jump in for a second? 100%. Yeah. So the other thing, I, I when I heard this based upon the physical evidence, I, I've always believed that he was not in the kitchen with her when he was making this 911 phone call. For one, even if, let's take his word, right, the statement he gave. He says he never moved the body. That's what he tells police first responders. That's what he tells detectives. That's what everyone says. The body was not moved. He says on the 911 tape, she's on her back. She wasn't. 
She was in a seated position against the cabinetry. Okay. Uh, I talked about this before in terms of the blood, how it pulled on her face and it wouldn't make any sense. She would have had to have been on her side at some point. Right. But he says she's on her back. Um, she was never on her back, at least not as the police found her and as his own words were, he never moved her. So it's a very interesting uh, choice of words to say she's on her back. And the way he describes her, it, it's almost as if he looked quickly and went somewhere else and made this phone call. He unnecessarily said that he was looking at her. Right. And it's and just that's impossible. A, that, that supports your the, the need to say something that is unnecessary. Right would support your idea that, and we both thought the same thing, that he was not uh, near her when he made that call. Because he's saying, I'm looking right at her. And it's like, well, wait a second, if you are, you, how are you not describing what you're seeing? Because you're certainly not describing what you're seeing. That's Where is the asking for help for her? Where is the concern for her well-being? Why would he be reluctant to, to do um, any type of first aid or CPR upon her? There's also- Peter, Peter um, real quick, you, you I'm sorry, I, but you've you looked at, Literally, I'm sure thousands of 911 calls. Um, wh where does this lie? Is there some sort of scale, um, for lack of a better term? I mean, where, where do you think this lies on the deception scale? He doesn't facilitate the flow of information. He doesn't ask for help for her. He asks for help, but not for her. He sets up an alibi before he gets to that. He is reluctant to do uh, any type of first aid. For her, he doesn't show concern for her. There is something that is a, it's very strange, but we find this in domestic homicides where he says he's sorry. And again, I believe him. Um, this is a terrible event that's taken place, and there's sorrow for him. Generally speaking, that can be associated with guilt. That a guilty person says that more often than not, than people that don't. He doesn't go, and this is what gets mixed, gets lost in this. He doesn't go directly to her needs. He doesn't go to what he's just found, the most startling thing. He goes to other areas, including stepping outside to uh, put himself linguistically outside. Um, Brianna, by the way, says, Gavin Fish, I'm seeing is a lot of coverage on this case. No one knows more about this, uh, arguably, than Gavin Fish, except for maybe Guy D'Andrea, who's here right now. Uh, but they both know. A hell of a lot. I agree with Wendy Murphy 100%. My dad, who is a trained psychiatrist at the University of Geneva in Switzerland, which at one time was one of the best in the world, um, after all his study, uh, all his studies, uh, three words uh, was a lot of the advice that he, he gave, which was just do it from Nike. He loved that slogan. Uh, when anyone was stuck, just do it. Um, we can, I think, and this is why I say I agree with Wendy, we can analyze this, discuss it talk about it, you know, ad nauseum, but Guy D'Andrea, um, Wendy gave sort of very tangible examples of what you can do, which is raise hell with the district attorney. Right now it's with the Chester County district attorney, but sure. it's been with the Philadelphia yeah. Then it went to the attorney general. It's been all over the place, but what is your thought on how to make something happen with this case instead of just talking about it endlessly? Yeah, I mean, it was never going to happen. If it was in Philadelphia, it was never going to happen with this elected DA. And if anyone who's, I don't, I assume that anyone who's not from Philly wouldn't appreciate that. He has ran on a campaign and has consistently won. It is his goal to release, release murderers, not put people who kill people in jail. So uh, he would have no appetite whatsoever to prosecute this case.
Um, the other district attorneys around the state, some do, some don't. I don't think they're going to change. I really, I agree with Wendy to that aspect. Um, I don't see a change because I imagine they're evaluating this just like a lot of prosecutors would. And I don't necessarily agree that it's a slammed on case. I mean, the two examples that Wendy gave, which was OJ Simpson and Michael Jackson, we both know how those turned out and those were slammed on cases. Um, so in this case, you have to believe. So she was, if this was a homicide, right? And I do believe it was. Um, it could not have happened at the time that he was at the gym. And let me be clear. He was at the gym. That is provable, right? There is video of that. So if this was a homicide, it had to happen beforehand. Um, and so I think some of the challenges and the evidence that was or wasn't collected uh, is where that lies, right? If you, If a prosecutor wants to put the entire case on he did this, if let's assume they arrest the husband or the fiance, he did this and then made up this alibi about the gym. That didn't happen. He went to the gym for 34 minutes. He, he did do that. And when he came back, he was not back in the apartment. Again, that's provable. There are eyewitnesses who were outside the apartment for the entire time that he was banging on the door and they gave statements to police. So my point is it couldn't have happened from the five o'clock timeframe to about the six or 30 or so timeframe that the police ultimately show up. It had to have happened if it's a homicide prior to that. And I think that's where some of the challenges, uh, given the lack of investigation that should have been done, uh, that wasn't done. Because it does, definitively- it doesn't, matter, it doesn't matter. It's a homicide with one suspect. That's all I care about. If there were multiple suspects, I would care more about what you're saying, and I would worry more. There's only one suspect. There's a clear homicide. The 911 tape is very powerful evidence, at least the kind that you need to be able to get the jury to think he's guilty. OJ is not remotely comparable because race and the racism in that case that overrode the evidence isn't present in this case. If anything, you're going to get a nice jury that says this entitled little bastard thinks he could get away with this. They're going to hate him. I mean, you're more likely to get a jury willing to say this entitled white kid thinks he can get away with this. And we know black guys in Philly are going to prison all the time for, you know, selling marijuana. So you're, you're having a much better chance in a case that you think, even if you think it's weak, but, but I'm not even citing all the evidence. The, the fact is the motive is in the laptop. And if we can find out what the motive is to me, that makes it, you know, unassailable. But even without that, you have a case where you have only one suspect. When there, when in the whole world of possible people, there's just one, you cannot not charge. Better to charge and lose, but you cannot not charge. That's just irresponsible. And there are lots of homicide cases that get charged primarily because everybody agrees there's only one suspect and, and life is very, very precious. And you can't sure. do nothing. I've, tri I've tried over 100 homicide trials. There's I mean, 100 so you trials total. So, yeah, I know, you know what you're what saying. saying. You, get, you have weaker cases than this under your belt that you've won. I have no, no doubt. No question. About. No question. I never had a case with a, I, a prosecutor, wouldn't, I can't imagine, bring one uh, where the medical examiner, at least at this point, will get up and declare from a forensic pathology standpoint that this is a suicide. Now, but, but, but the reality you're just not going to have it. I mean, you're just not going to have a prosecutor bring that case. And then you put the medical examiner on trial during your case in chief and you explain how their first decision was homicide. 
Then he changed it to, to suicide. And then you ask him how much money he got in between. That's what you do. If you have to destroy your own corrupt witnesses, you do it. You do it with cops if you have to. You do it with the medical examiner if you have to. You don't run like a chicken liver in the wrong direction because the guy who you suspect is the killer has money. There's no, oh, such that's thing not the reason. I just don't think it's in the constitution I was trained under. If we believe yeah. that to be true, you go forward extra hard in a case like this to make the point that you don't just lock up black guys. You don't just lock up black guys. I would get the, the anti-racism community on my side in this case and make the point that, that the prisons are filled with mostly black guys who did much less than this guy. And why is this not a big issue in the black community in Philly that is so struggling right now with the problem of racism. I want to say two other quick things, if you don't mind, because I know we're going to run out of time. And I have two other, and I'm really eager to hear what Guy thinks about this, but certainly um, want at least just want the family to know these are things that I've thought about. And that is, aside from the protesting and all of that stuff, to me, again, there are companies that you can pay to put protesters in the right place for the next 10 years, if you want to, you got to pay and it's expensive, but do it. That would be number one. But my other ideas are this. Number one, sue the prosecutor and sue the police, not for negligence, not for wrongfully failing to file charges because you can't sue for those things. That is illegal. Sue them for sex discrimination because you will easily find a boatload of other cases where a similar thing happened, a man got killed, and charges were filed. And you can at least make a prima facie case that not charging in this case is because the entire system discriminates against women. I guarantee you that Philly and whatever other counties are involved at this point has incredibly powerful statistical proof that they disproportionately fail to file charges when the victim is a woman. I promise you that data is there. I guarantee it because I wrote a Supreme Court brief not long ago where I gave that data to the Supreme Court to prove that in every state in this country, every court system is biased against women in terms of charging decisions, in terms of who wins custody in family court cases. I could go on, but this is data with which I'm very familiar. You can file a sex discrimination lawsuit. And what do you get out of that? You get the opportunity to force discovery. You can make the government officials in this case prove that they were not discriminating and that they do have a valid reason for not charging in this case. Do it just because you can irritate them and get access to documents that you may still need and don't yet have access to. Second idea. File a civilian request for criminal charges. In every state in this country, when a prosecutor refuses to file charges, we have a constitutional right under the First Amendment. We think the First Amendment is only about, about free speech. It's also about the right of redress. The right of redress is a First Amendment, very precious right. And it means you can go to your court system, you can go to your government, all branches, but the court is a branch of government too, and seek redress of grievances. Well, a grievance includes when your child is killed and no one's doing anything about it. Go so, so when the government is supposed to do something about it, but they won't, you can cite your First Amendment right to seek redress of grievances and file your own criminal charge in the district court where the homicide happened. Now, what you can't do is file a civilian request for a criminal charge of murder. You can't do that because the lower, that lower court doesn't have jurisdiction over murder. That's not a felony court. But what you can get a charge for is harassment. 
harassment under Pennsylvania law includes includes hurting somebody in a physical way, assaulting them, battering them, beating them. Go to court. I'm recommending this to the family. Go to court and fill out the form that allows them to demand a criminal charge be filed against the suspect for harassment. That's one of the charges that's allowed to be filed under Pennsylvania law. Now, it's not murder, but it's not nothing. It is not nothing. And you know what they get out of that? A hearing. And guess what? Evidence gets to be presented. And the person that they suspect is the one who did the harassing has to show up. And if they don't put on a case proving they don't deserve charges to be filed against them, or if they take the fifth, the magistrate will issue charges. Now, it's not murder, but it's something. And when then real public- quick, what, I, what I'm worried about is uh, Josh and Sandy have spent over a half million dollars of their own money. Uh, this starts to add up, though, right? Doing what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I mean, I don't know how much they have. I do a lot of this work for free. I don't know anything about Pennsylvania law. I have no doubt that there's a lawyer like Guy, for example, who would probably do that part of it for free for them because it's just a one hearing thing. I don't want to put you on the spot, Guy. Maybe it's cheap for Guy. I mean, I'm sure he deserves to be paid handsomely. But the point is, it's not a very complicated situation because you just go in. He knows the case very well. You present the evidence to the magistrate. Again, you don't have to prove murder, just harassment. Once you get that charge in place, it's a public proceeding. It's a criminal investigation. Yes, the prosecutor can probably then uh, make a stink about having to handle the case, but at least you're doing something in the place where this case belongs, which is in the criminal system. It's something people should do more often, especially when the prosecutor for apparently uh, irrational reasons and maybe even in uh, you know um, improper reasons is refusing to bring charges it's a way to put heat on the prosecutor it's not going to get you the justice you deserved but it's better than nothing and it can put heat on the right people in the right way because then the media can come in and cover it it's a public event it's a public matter what are they going to say how are they going to explain themselves if, if the family goes to the district court and gets a harassment charge against the suspect, what's the prosecutor going to say? The magistrate is wrong? You don't, ha- you don't need the medical examiner, right? So what, is, what are they going to say? The magistrate uh, it shouldn't have brought charges? And what are they going to say? It's going to be embarrassing. It's going to be I embarrassing. Have, I have a brilliant idea. and I, I'm, I'll put him on the spot, but I don't want to put him on the spot. Maybe Guy and, and Wendy can uh, work together a little bit to... Well, I can address the the criminal filing of Pennsylvania. So it's called a private criminal complaint. Yeah. Um, if you want to file one, so uh, out of the 67 counties in Pennsylvania, six, uh, 66 do things one way, Philadelphia does it the other. Um, so we don't have district court or magistrates. We have municipal court. So what would happen is you file the private criminal complaint. You have to allege on the complaint that costs about 150 hours, at least used to when I was a DA. Um, you have to allege who, who you are saying did it and the evidence that you have to support it and, and bring the evidence with you at that filing. Uh, at that point, I looked it up. Yeah. And so at that point, the, so Jersey, for instance, allows, which I think is a great system. Jersey allows citizens like that to actually have a private attorney represent them in that criminal process. They can appoint sort of a special prosecutor, if you will. Pennsylvania does not. So it would go back to the district attorney's office. Yeah, but not at that handle. first stage. At the first stage? Oh, no, 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 not at the filing stage. No, right. not at the filing and, stage. And at the hearing before the municipal person, 
You, so you don't, so hang on. So you don't, in Pennsylvania, this is what I'm saying. Yeah. 66 counties, you'd get a hearing. In Philadelphia, uh, we have a special charter. Anyone who is charged with a misdemeanor does not get a hearing. There's no preliminary hearing. There's no investigative hearing. You go immediately to a trial. No jury, not allowed a jury. And what happens, and you might say, how did that violate the Constitution? How? Because if a defendant is found guilty at the municipal court trial, then they have a right to appeal de novo. Uh, to the Court of Common Pleas. Now, the issue, though, with filing the harassment or anything like that, if there is any, you have to be very careful because any allegation that any of the abuse, if that's what the allegations are, um, occurred either as a uh, preamble to or during or leading up to the homicide, if the defendant was found not guilty under Pennsylvania Supreme Court, uh, and our laws, it it would constitute double jeopardy. So that's right. You have to plead it very carefully. I agree yeah, with I mean, so you would you would. I mean, so God forbid something ever came out, uh, and you could actually arrest someone for homicide by doing. It. And the reason this came up, it just as the listeners, um, this was always the issue with DUIs, right? So what would happen in Philadelphia, and this was a big Philadelphia issue, is you get pulled over for speeding, you get a DUI. Now. In many counties, the speeding ticket attaches to the DUI. So when you have your trial, you have both. Not in Philly, because again, we do everything different, apparently. So you have traffic court, which happens very quick, and then the DUI trial is months, if not a year or so later. Well, defendants are being found not guilty of the speeding ticket, and then they go for their DUI trial, and their defense attorney stands up and says, this is double jeopardy. Yeah. And the court found that, in fact, it was. So we've at least we fixed that very minor problem. But that's one of the significant issues you'd also have to work with yeah, in Pennsylvania I mean, and Philadelphia specific. You plead it very carefully and you make sure that everybody knows you're doing it for a certain purpose and not to prove homicide. And what you get out of that, I think, is, you know, has yet to be seen because probably no one's done it before. But you get to actually force the prosecutor to answer questions at a minimum because they do fundamentally have a role to play whenever charges are filed. And, um, you know, the magistrate, it'd be very interesting if a court official in the form of, you know, a magistrate or whatever you call them. They're judges. Uh, They're elected judges. In okay. Courts. So, you know, <laughs> you've got, you've got another potential person to make a judgment on, on the right side. And, and you can't just sit around and hope and wait till some politician changes their mind. They'll wait till everybody else drops dead. It's just not going to happen until you provoke and poke the pig, for lack of a better word, um, in, in the ways that matter. And, and I've had great success filing these civilian requests for criminal charges. Sometimes it embarrasses the prosecutor and doesn't cause a criminal charge to, to, you know, to result. Sometimes it does. But it never—it's it, never nothing. Well, I'm going to uh, suggest that we uh, put some very big brains together, connect Wendy and Guy and uh, the Greenbergs with their permission. Uh, Guy obviously is in touch with them. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll talk to Wendy about it offline. But uh, this, to me, uh, shows that we are on the path to justice. One of the more interesting shows. Uh, that I think we've done a uh, big part to both attorneys, but also to Peter Hyatt. Uh, Guy DeAndrea, for those who do not know, he is a former Philadelphia uh, assistant district attorney in the homicide unit uh, and now a plaintiff's attorney. Uh, so I got it right the second time. Yeah. Guy CJ Drake writes, what can a lay person, this is what I was asking Wendy, what can a lay person do to help shed more light on this case? Petition, email, Philly officials, 
Um, sounds like Wendy says, don't, don't bother with the officials go straight to the DA. What is your suggestion? Well, yeah, you I don't think the, I'm sorry, uh, go ahead. yeah, the officials, I, I don't disagree. I mean, the officials, we don't have to discuss really whether they will or won't. They do something. They've proven they won't do something. Right. Um, I, I I've been, I've never, you know, it's interesting, uh, Sandy and Josh, I've spoken to on the phone. I've, I've, I've spoken to many times. I've done everything I can to give information, help them. Cause it's just horrific. I never met them. I've actually never met them in, in person. And I've, I've spoken and I know one day we have to meet. So Sandy and Josh, that has to happen. Um, but they've seen this whole process. I mean, th this has been a travesty of justice since January 26. There's no question about it from the criminal justice system. And I don't even like to use the word justice in this case, cause there isn't any, um, yeah, the, the push has to be, um, I do strongly believe in their civil case. And I really believe that getting, they're, they're, they're having a novel and groundbreaking potential lawmaking here in Pennsylvania with this case. And, you know, lawyers always say bad facts make bad laws. There is no better case. And it's so sad to say it that way because at the end of the day, this case is Ellen, right? And, but there's no better case to change the law in Pennsylvania that will allow for a quicker, ideally, review of a medical examiner's report that doesn't make any sense or a medical examiner finding, right? We don't have that right now in Pennsylvania. So that groundbreaking decision not only will help Ellen, I think it will help so many other families throughout the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And then that, if we can, if that can happen and then it does get changed because it should be changed based upon the evidence, um, it, it's a game changer. It really is a game changer. I, I don't agree with that. I think it's a waste of money. And yes, it's nice if you win that. And yes, it's nice if there's some accountability. But it doesn't change the fact that even with a designation of homicide, um, that the same political officials can continue to do nothing. And they will. And they'll just drag it out. And it'll take forever to win your case and blah, 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 blah. And they don't care. So change the thing to homicide. They'll still do nothing. And no one will uh, have the power to make them do something just because it says homicide, because they'll say in their discretion, they've already reviewed the case and nothing more needs to be done. So I'm not saying it's worthless. I'm saying on this case, it's a waste of time because, because memories are going to fade. Emotions are going to fade. You got to act while the iron is hot. And, and by, by the iron being hot now, the question is, how can we make it hotter? What's hot now? How can we make it hotter? Lawn signs on everybody's lawn, billboards. Somebody needs to put up billboards in every area of town. And they should be sassy and extremely poignant about why they're up there, right? Don't just say, don't, it should be something like, don't elect these people because they, you know, don't care about dead women or something. It's got to be very bold. Yeah. And remember that when the next election comes around, uh, if the same guys get reelected, the ones that are tanking this case, then it's your fault. It's your fault for not doing what you need to do as as voters. I mean, people people want to know what they can do. You voted these people in. They're all elected officials. Why are you voting them in? This I'll is tell you why in Philly. So first, I mean, I'm not making fun. I'm serious. We need to come up with a different solution because there is no lawns in Philly. So there's no lawn signs possible. Uh, we have row homes. Uh, but we the the other thing is that you, this is the second time our elected a, a DA got elected. When he took office, uh, Philadelphia it's still horrific, but Philadelphia had a homicide rate around 280 homicides. Uh, after his first year, uh, it rose skyrocketed to nearly 600. Um, people who were committing homicide, shooting at police uh, when the 
negotiators would arrive, the person they would ask to speak to was not defense attorneys, not lawyers that would represent criminals. They asked to speak to the elected DA. People in prison will tell each other. I have heard dozens of, of prison calls, dozens, about don't worry about it because you're never going to do any serious time. Now, the point is, his opponents have ran on this platform. And unfortunately, Philadelphia, like San Francisco, and like so many of our other cities, have ran on this wild, and look, I'm not, I don't mean to talk politics, but this wild progressive agenda where there's no such thing as a criminal. And it's preposterous to me, um, but that's the city that we live in right now. It's horrific, crime is through the roof, and no one seems to care. And they keep well, reelecting him. Well, one and it's, way, it's a real problem. It's a I real problem. You. I believe you. And I will guarantee you that uh, hate crimes against women in Pennsylvania are probably also through the roof. More than five, I'm sure. women, oh, I'm more sure. than five women a day are killed by men in this country. That's double the number it was 20 years ago. And, and, and many states don't even cover women in their hate crime laws. I don't know off the top of my head what Pennsylvania says about women and hate crimes. But the point is, this is a dead woman killed by a man. And right now, because because this is a politically salient moment in time, the elections coming up in a year, you know, make and I don't know when your elections are coming, but make the fact that this is a woman, a dead woman, yeah. make it a political issue because she's female, just like somebody change. Make it an issue if, if this person was Asian. You know, if yeah. you kill a woman because she's a woman. That's a hate crime. It deserves the same amount of political energy as if someone killed a black person because they're black. Make this into a gender issue. Use the data that's out there to prove that Pennsylvania disproportionately let, lets women die because they disproportionately, Pennsylvania causes women to die because they disproportionately fail to prosecute rape, domestic violence, and even murder. What has to happen to a woman before Pennsylvania officials will care about her life? This is the theme, you know, your story, the narrative, the theme, the the the, no the, doubt. Stickiness, yeah. the stickiness of the story should be about her being dead because she's female. Then maybe you'll get people to rally around you, women's groups, mothers' groups, not just this generic we got crime that's out of control. Because well, it's not just generic. I mean, the problem too in Philly, and I, and I mean this, and this is what this needs to be changed from the from top down. And, and so, for instance, with our domestic violence courtroom, which 99.99, darn near 100% of the survivors' victims in that room are women. The court staff, the judges, the defense attorneys, these women have been, this is felonious, violent, serious crimes, sexual assaults. The courts, the judges, the defense attorneys, the court staff refer to that room as love court. And it's That's discrimination. That's it's disgusting. Yeah, it's, it's disgusting. And that's the mentality in this sad city right now. And I love it. It's constitutional to treat violence against women as a second class problem. This is a perfect example of the problem. File a discrimination lawsuit. Make this a national, you know, lightning rod to the issue, which is a problem in every state. Make her case symbolic of all the dead women in every other state. You can blow this up in so many ways if you turn it into a story about men who kill women and walk free, because that's an epidemic in this country. And that's when, the story Wendy, given, um, Wendy giving very, very tangible advice. Now it's up to STS Nation to uh, grab the baton and let's figure out a way to uh, implement it. Wendy Murphy, for those who do not know, is an adjunct professor of sexual violence law at New England Law Boston a former visiting scholar at Harvard 
and uh, never one to shy away from her opinion. And then Peter Hyatt, I owe you a little apology because we got you and I got caught in the crossfire here between two very smart attorneys, but uh, your insight was amazing. Peter Hyatt is a statement analyst and instructor who teaches statement analysis and analytical interviewing to law enforcement in corporate America. Uh, Peter, I wanted to give you, um, you know, just a last word. Obviously, we listened to a lot about this 911 call, but anything that you would like to uh, sort of finish off on, any final thoughts regarding this, the deception involved in this case, and how you think it should play out? He is withholding information. He's not candid about what took place. Uh, time is certainly on his mind. His priority was not the victim, but his priority was himself. He had a need. He wanted help. He wanted protection. He's sorry. So it comes down to him. Uh, perhaps the most succinct statement of the night and uh, very logical and clear. Um, and Wendy nodded her head uh, in a, in. Uh, approval. So listen, I, I really want to thank these guests. This topic is becoming uh, more and more personal to me. Uh, we can affect change. You have people like Guy DeAndrea, and you have uh, super smart women like Wendy Murphy. Um, and with Wendy's permission, I will connect her with the Greenbergs. And uh, hopefully we can keep this momentum going and the ball rolling. A uh, quick programming note, two shows tomorrow. Chief Technical Officer is trying to kill me. 12.30, we are doing, what are we doing? We're doing a Utah mom who uh, poisoned and is, stands accused of poisoning her husband, Eric Richens. Corey Richens is the topic. And then 8 p.m. tomorrow night, live with Ross Colthart, the man who brought forth the UFO whistleblower. That is at 8 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Philadelphia. Love you, Maine. And love you, Boston. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how, no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com 
slash ranks.